Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Many executives and business leaders as well as entrepreneurs get a business coach to drive them further and ensure they stay the course through the inevitable peaks and troughs of a career or a business life. Enter today's guest, Karen Stein, a professional certified executive coach who is passionate about supporting leaders to be their best selves. She has over 30 years of experience working in the fast-paced world of professional services, 23 of those years as a partner of Deloitte, one of the big four firms as we call them. She brings a depth of understanding to the challenges that leaders face. With over 2,000 one-on-one coaching hours, Karen has found that important intersection between coaching psychology with real-world experience and that enhances her offering. She's also a volunteer coach for clients such as Dress for Success and worked with the social enterprise group, Bambuda Group. She's authored a book chapter on mental toughness in coaching for self-awareness about attitude and mindset and her first book, Be Your Own Leadership Coach, Self-Coaching Strategies to Lead Your Way, was published in June 2023. And that is our topic for this episode. So her ultimate aim is to have positive leadership impact, which is longstanding once she has left that coaching room with her clients. So welcome to the politics of everything, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless, the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me, I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound, and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automate post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Young Karen, what did you want to be as a kid? I don't know that leadership coach was really in that kind of career (laughs) cycle when we were probably going through school. Do you remember what you thought you might want to do? Yeah, quite right. I hadn't heard of of leadership coaching at the time. Initially, I remember in my early days, I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. Um, I I just thought it would be a fun thing to do. I think I quite enjoyed my school experience and I felt you know, warm and favourably towards my primary school teachers. You know, when you, you kind of look at them with yeah, and chase them around the playground, that kind of thing. So there was a bit of that happening and I just thought, hmm, that could be good. Uh, and then as I moved into high school, it began to change somewhat. We're um, still to do with people, but I, I thought perhaps I could assist people being a family lawyer or a family law specialist. 
Great. Well, that's been interesting to see, obviously, where your career has landed and you spend a long time in the big four. I have heard a lot about coaching and I've worked with a bunch of executive coaches through my business as well. What is self-coaching and why is it valuable for leaders to be able to do this? Well, self-coaching is is taking ownership of coaching to work through yourself. So typically, if we can have a coach, we'll sit with them and we'll explore and discover and use them as a point of reflection uh, to help us work towards the goals that we have or resolve the issues, obstacles, problems that we have. And that's fabulous when you're sitting one-on-one in a room with your coach or perhaps on Zoom. But what tends to happen is those coaching sessions go for a definitive point in time and you end up having to do things on your own. And even when you have a coach in between sessions, there's a need for you also to self-sustain, to build your own responses and experiments around the coaching that you're doing with your executive coach. Some people also can't afford a coach. So it's not just the logistics, it could be the financial issues. And my thinking was if we could increase the equity of access to coaching strategies by helping people enable themselves to self-coach, they would be able to take responsibility and accountability for lifting themselves up, increasing their self-reflection, being much more self-aware, mindful and conscious of the impact that they could have so they could enable themselves to have that leadership impact hopefully a positive one that is motivating and inspiring and long-lasting and allow themselves to also feel much more comforted and resourceful in being able to access different coaching strategies uh, by carrying them around in what I refer to as, as your virtual backpack each day, having them with you, having them on you and being able to draw upon them in the challenges that you face each day. Is there sort of, I guess, once you've kind of got this backpack, like you mentioned, and you have some tools at your disposal, do you need to kind of refresh them as well? Like how does that sort of, I guess, keep sustaining you as the challenges might change over time? Absolutely. I I think the way I look at the backpack being a virtual backpack, it can be as full as you like it, (laughs) as full as you let it rather. And, And by leaving the flap, you know, gently open, you can add more to it as you go. There, there is no limitation at this point in building out more awareness, building your perspectives, your insights and knowledge, and that all comes from self-coaching. So the more that you're attuned with yourself as to what's helping you or what's hindering you or perhaps which parts of you are showing up in the moment, what's the environment uh, triggering in you and how can you respond to that and maybe what's the thinking that you have, the assumptions you hold or the biases you carry, all of these issues relating to your behaviours, emotions and your cognitions can be uh, much more effective when you're actually aligned with them. You're you're much more in tune with them through self-coaching. So as we go through life, we'll face into new and different challenges. The world's changing all the time. And with that, it'll allow us to draw on different types of self-coaching strategies in those moments. So it it is building new habits, new new muscles. I call them self-coaching muscles and exercising those muscles so you can actually build them up and they're available to support you. So how do you know if you've had the right kind of lasting impact as a leader? And I guess it's that retrospective thing. And I'm sort of fresh off this thought because I've recently heard from the former Pepsi CEO, Indra Nooyer, who spoke at the World Business Forum in Sydney, who was very candid, was full of reflection because she obviously no longer wore that CEO and leadership hat. There was a sense of I can be really revealing because, you know, I guess these people are no longer paying my paycheck. So I can talk about the challenges and I guess some of the problems and and I guess the way she dealt with them in a way that you might not be able to when you're actually in the role. And I guess to tie that all up, you know, that impact is interesting because I often think once a CEO leaves and we get new reins in there, for example, their legacy is kind of done or do you have a different view on that? 
Well, you'd hope the legacy will be long-lasting even when you, you've left the room, and, and that, that I think is the mark of a good leader. So in her case, she does have a long-standing, long-lasting legacy. We still reference the work that she's done. We still invite her in to talk about the work that she's done and what she's achieved and how she got there, and we're very inspired by uh, her story as she tells it. And that's, that's what I think marks a good leader, someone who is motivating and inspiring and has that positive leadership impact that ripples beyond them. It actually is enduring when they're not in the room so that people can actually be referencing them and referencing what they've brought to their attention, whether it's it's values or strategy or, or a combination of a whole lot of different things which are navigating us towards a common set of goals and understanding the needs of the individuals who are being led rather than just leading on your own. So I, I think it's, you know, it's, it doesn't, even when you've completed your role, I would hope that your impact has been such that it is memorable and it's positively memorable and it has helped and, and equipped people so that they can also be of their best. You've got credentials as an evidence-based coaching psychologist and you've you know obviously got that, that piece which a lot of people might not have as a coach. How does that play a specific role in how you approach or operate your coaching practice and is there an example way in which you might use that on a quite regular basis? Yeah, and, and just um, in terms of that qualification, I have a Master's of Science in Coaching Psychology. So I'm not a registered psychologist as such, but I, I do have very much a leaning towards coaching psychology, and that uh, draws from the field of positive psychology. And I feel strongly towards uh, utilising, I guess, three different domains when I coach. I like to coach um, from the gut, so instinctively understanding what the system is that the person is working in. I like to coach from the heart. I'm high in empathy and compassion. But the most important thing to me is coaching from the head, and that's from a theoretical base. And so I draw uh, very much from the field of positive psychology, which is, is rich in academic learnings and trials and uh, readings, and I, I find the evidence base is very strong. And I think that's important because we're dealing in a field where there are boundaries between helping somebody and supporting somebody and trying to motivate somebody and assist them in achieving, collaborating with them to achieve what they want, but also stepping very closely at times to other parts of their well-being, which might be mental health, for instance. And I think we just need to be very conscious of the evidence base we're drawing on to ensure that we're not doing anything that endangers the individual, puts them at risk or takes them to a place through challenge which is not safe. And that's why I utilise positive psychology because of the evidence base. So, for example, if I'm trying to help somebody around building their confidence, I might lean into self-determination theory, which is a theory which came from Desi and Ryan, and there's a lot of literature around that. And that looks at three different components that I can then work with my coachee around how they build their autonomy. So how can they do things of their own volition and they make choices around what they're trying to achieve? Uh, how can they build their mastery and competencies? Because when we're actually building up our skills, um, we feel much more confident and equipped to allow us to step into a challenge. And what's their sense of relatedness? How can they build up their relatedness, their interpersonal relationships? So if they perhaps don't have an answer, They might be able to lean into those relationships and seek support from others. Or they could have perhaps what I refer to as their personal board of directors around them to to support them, coaches, mentors, advocates, family and friends who they can lean into for support. So by utilising well-proven theories, uh, it gives us a nice structure to assist people and it's a proven structure in terms of the evidence base behind it as to what it can do towards your positive well-being. 
how it can increase your levels of engagement, motivation, how you can feel that your your performance improves, the quality of your work improves. You're much more open-minded towards towards solving complex problems than shirking away. And overall, you have more of an experience of positive emotions. So your well-being does actually improve, which ripples to people around you as well. And I, I, I feel very strongly that it's an unregulated industry that we're working in in coaching. I like to have a basis which helps to, to I guess, draw upon some form of, of framing around it, um, which, as I said, uh, provides people with, with the, the best outcome that we can try and achieve together. I often think that the best leaders I've worked with, and of course I'm a communications consultant, so this is my space, people often think of them as great orators or speakers or presenters, but I always tell the letters I work with, they also need to be really fabulous listeners, particularly if they're going to do things like media interviews where you can't just give out your key messages, you actually have to listen and engage with what's happening around you. How can you help your clients refine, I guess, some of these, I call them, I don't call them soft skills, people traditionally have, but, you know, I guess those communication skills to be more effective inside and outside their organisation. So I think sometimes, you know, performance is often seen as that external stuff, but a lot of the stakeholder engagement that I see have the most success is how people communicate internally and that includes that listening piece. Oh, it really does. It does. I mean, absolutely. A chapter I've written in my book is called The Best Leaders Listen. And to my mind, they really do because they're the ones who are stopping and noticing and being curious and hearing more from other people rather than necessarily um bringing their expertise to the forefront and talking at people and people can get really excited and zestful when they know the answer to something and they want to tell people and give them the answer right you can you see it from school days onwards you know kids kind of jumping up and down in their seats wanting to give the answer and the hands going up and they're going me 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 and there they are trying to you know sprout what they know and we've been I guess trained to some degree to show what we know but I think the better training is when we come into using inquiry and using listening skills to understand that we don't know everything and if we can listen and open our mind to what else is possible by hearing other people's points of view, pushing open our cognitive boundaries so we broaden our perspectives, get more insights, more data points, more knowledge and information so that we can lift ourselves up to a, a higher place and see more and learn more, we'll be so much more informed as leaders. Absolutely, we'll I agree. We'll start to understand what's yeah. important to people. Yeah, so it's it's um you know opening ourselves up, having that vulnerability to actually think to yourself, well, I might have a point of view, I might have an opinion, but maybe there's other ways of doing this that could help inform me and then help other people as a result. Sorry, I no, I, I just wanted to just touch on that because I suppose it's just I guess my other question is the how. So you know, it's all very well to set up formal mm-hmm. forums and people go, wow, we're going to have a lunch and learn, and we want to yeah. hear from you about you know what's working and what's not. That can be quite intimidating for people. So that that constant listening and that constant engagement is always what I'm wanting to kind of get a better idea about. Like how do you actually make sure that that happens and you create a culture where that's ongoing and not just sort of, I guess, forum-based, if that makes sense? Sure. Yeah, I think I think it's actually skilling people in the art of listening. I think that's really important and making people or helping people understand the value of listening and the different types and skills that come with it. Um, there's some easy tips I can share with you. Absolutely. You know, that'd be great. Yeah, people yeah. love those, I think. Oh, good. Well, the first thing I think is, is actually um, getting a friend to help you or a colleague to help you. And when you next step into a meeting and you're running the meeting or you're going out to, to meet with somebody about your product or your, your uh, services, Ask your colleague to notice how many questions you ask. They can tell you what the quality of the questions were like because we can just, you know, a question could be, hi, how are you? Not, not a great deep quality question there. But also what percentage of time did you spend talking? 
And that in itself is starting to build up your self-awareness. So the first thing we need to do is become much more self-aware of how we're contributing to conversations. Are we entering into a conversation to tell people things or are we entering into a conversation with a mindset of curiosity and learning? And how can I use some prompts if I can't hear it or see it? How can I have other people brief me afterwards to say, you know what, you know, you you asked five questions. I'd say two of them were really beginning to allow the, the person you were with to open up more. But the other two, you know, kind of closed questions didn't really take us anywhere. So if you can start to get support, if you can't see it yourself, as to the types of questions you're asking, how curious you are to unpack more with the people you're speaking to, how you're understanding what's important to them. So how you're using empathy by standing in their shoes and trying to explore more what's important, what's a priority, what's of relevance, what are the burning issues that might be being dealt with in that very moment or in that very day that perhaps weren't there when you arranged that meeting or otherwise. That's going to be a very useful way to do it. But then asking yourself, well, when I am listening, what am I listening for? And a tip can be if you're listening to hear and confirm what you think and just go, yeah, exactly, that's exactly what I wanted to hear, then you've done selective listening. So listening to yourself and your response is part of listening. You know, what am I hearing of myself, my inner voice, that's telling me how I'm listening? So if, if you've said something to me and I say, yep, got it, that's what I wanted to hear and I've steered the conversation away, I've been very selective. If I actually continue with my questions, continue the conversation and have an exploratory dialogue, then I'm actually listening to understand. And that's the big difference. It's not listening simply to tick a box and to confirm my own biases or my own assumptions or my own thinking. It's listening to understand what else is there. How much further can we go or do we need to go in order to jointly come together to a conclusion which meets our needs? And so those kind of questions of yourself is, you know, first of all, am I listening? Am I being distracted? So you can actually stop yourself and think, what's what's getting in the way of me listening? Is it that inner voice? Is it that I'm allowing maybe technology to get in the way? So do I keep looking at my phone while people are talking to me? Um, am I on my email while someone's coming to my office or to my desk and I haven't lifted my head while they're talking to me? Is it that there's something in the room that's distracting me? So maybe a colleague's, you know, doing something that's distracting me or, or people are, are um, you know, t- talking next to me and that's distracting me. What are the things that get in the way? Yeah, and just stopping like and noticing that is going to be the first start to opening yourself up to say, well, how do I position myself, literally position myself to be open and present and demonstrate to other people through body language, through oral cues, you know, the ums, the ahs, the huh type things that we say, you know, when someone's speaking, you can just nod your head lightly. You can, mm-hmm, okay, thanks. Um, giving them back some feedback that they that you're with them and then asking questions as appropriate not peppering them with questions like they're in some kind of interrogation, but also being conscious of how there's an interplay, this flow of dialogue as opposed to um, the selective listening or the or the journalistic approach. Absolutely. You mentioned empathy early, and I'm always curious to, to ask people more about their position on, on that kind of, I guess, approach. What, mm-hmm. How does being kind manifest itself so that you're not just sort of liked and appreciated, but you're actually still able to command respect, but perhaps in a more grounded and and accessible way. What's your sort of way in which you couch, I guess, some of those discussions with leaders? Well, I love the construct of kindness. I think it's certainly underutilized in the business world and is one we can dial up significantly. And kindness is not simply about being liked. Uh, people think it's a soft a soft skill, you know, as you said earlier, and it's too soft. You know, if I'm kind, does it mean I'm soft? Does it mean I'm nice? Well, people take nice. advantage of me and then they won't sort of respect me. I think, yeah, there's some sort of, I guess, attachments which can be positive or negative to any word, but I think particularly that one with leadership 
I've always struggled to see how they can kind of operate but still, you know, deliver for the bottom line, all the stuff that you might need to do. You might need to make people redundant. There might be lots of things happening that are not necessarily couched in kindness, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And and it, it certainly, I, I appreciate that there will be decisions made in the business world that are not always seen as kind, but are very much driven uh, f- because of metrics or other, other KPIs or other factors to sustain a business. But knowing that we can still try and appreciate and, res- and, and do so respectfully, the types of conversations we have, the way that we help and support people in those moments. Sometimes being kind does require tough decisions. It might require tough feedback. Uh, people might also be thinking, well, if you're not giving the feedback, you're being unkind. How is that person going to learn and grow and be able to have uh, a better career if, if you're not actually helping them see what they can't see and bringing their blind spots to their attention? And so rather than dishing out tough love where they really feel kind of it's almost like a sting to the face where they feel like they've received a punch in the chin with the feedback and, and all they're feeling is the sting on the chin but they're not really listening to what you're saying, And at the other end, being too kind where it's just kind of wrapped up in tissue paper and nobody can really feel it, it's that that really the the sweetness and light that comes with not telling people the actual message because you don't want to hurt their feelings. We need to move to, to, I guess, the balance in between using some form of kindness with challenge so people can understand the impact of their current behaviour and also what the behavioural change could lead to if, if they don't make some kind of change and giving examples is always really helpful if, if you're giving feedback and you just tell people look you know what you're doing is not being very effective uh, you've, you've got to do things differently that's not being kind in the slightest but if I actually sat down and said well look let's talk about how you're performing the the behavior I'm seeing of late is is x y and z I'm seeing a bit of a pattern of the way that you're talking over people all the time as a result of this people are feeling that they're not being heard by you and they're feeling disgruntled and and uncomfortable in the meetings that you're conducting with them, if you were to actually take a pause or maybe count to three in your head or um, actually actively try to listen, you might actually find that your perspective is broadened. You might gain from it and you'd also find that the engagement of your team improves. So how about we work on trying to build those listening skills and I can be somebody who can help show you what I'm what we're seeing so I can give you you know feedback from time to time to let you know if, if the change is coming through and that's kindness that's actually help and support might make that person feel a little uncomfortable for that moment but in time they'll realize that that has been supportive to allow them to be the best they can be so kindness requires two things an inner orientation and an outer orientation the inner orientation is making sure that we also are being kind to ourselves showing ourselves kindness and compassion so making sure that we're not always being tough and hard on ourselves and, and speaking to ourselves with you know, the, the negative thoughts, the imposter syndrome, these types of things, but actually being realistic in our thinking and trying to draw forward our strengths and our values and our purpose to better support ourselves. And then the outer orientation is looking at, well, what is the impact that I can have in the way that I role model my behaviours? What do people see in me that supports them? Uh, what can I do to try and bring things to people's attention that might also help them with their growth and their career development? And how quickly can I do it? So there's some visibility that I am responsive to an issue as opposed to maybe walking by it. And I think with that outer orientation, we can make people feel like they matter. That's what leadership is about to me, is making people feel like they're significant and they're worthy and they're of value and they add value. And I'm actually making sure that they hear from me that I've noticed that. 
and I'm bringing it to their attention so that they can continue to feel very much included and a part of, of what we're doing. Yeah, I love that. What's, I guess, the most common mistake that you think leaders make, particularly if you're in a C-suite or the top job in their business and why? I mean, I, I guess you see so many things, but is there some sort of degree of commonality of something that you've identified in all those thousands of hours of coaching that you've actually done? Yeah, I'd say to my mind the biggest mistake is going alone. And, and what I mean by that is, is sometimes the more senior we get, the more we have an expectation that people expect so much of us in the roles we have. They expect that I should have all the answers. They expect that I can respond really quickly, uh, that I can solve this problem, that problem, and so on. And so the lack of consultation, again, comes back to perspective taking, can narrow my view of what's possible. I can find myself perhaps too much in the detail and not seeing the big enough picture, or maybe my ideas, my thinking is a little bit redundant. I'm not noticing the changing dynamics in the system that's playing, what's emerging in the system changes that I need to be aware of. So the leaders, I think, who are probably struggling the most are those who are not taking a broader systems view, systems mindset to what they do. You're really understanding that we're not here as an isolated person in a role in an organisation, but we're functionally within a system which has lots of moving parts and change and ambiguity and people coming and going in organisations. And with that, different things emerge. And the other organisations we work with in the business community, there's differences that happen with theirs, which means our relationships alter from time to time. The economic climate changes, the government regulators change. And if we're not really opening ourselves up to say, well, how do we solve for the, the system that we're in today by collaborating with people around me, smart people who also have their expertise and see things differently to me, then I think you've been quite short-sighted. You might get somewhere quickly, but it might not be the best result of what you could have achieved had you brought other people in for a conversation. Yeah, I love that. I think that's um, very uh, accessible for people to understand why that, you know, why that's the case. Changing tack a little bit, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? It could be in business, but it could also be personally. And why was that advice so important to you? Uh, the advice was from my mum and it was just telling me to just be me, just be yourself. And and I think as you grow up, you know, you're always, you're, you're going through changes in your life where you're discovering who you are and, and how you should be and how you should act. And, and you know, perhaps as parents we see um, things in our kids where we recognise that that's not really authentic to them or even if they're trying out a different way of talking or acting or being, you know, when they start to land on, on what's more natural, it's it's so much more comfortable. And I think that, you know, learning that as I grew up from my mum I guess, gave me a greater sense of, of self-acceptance and not to say that, you know, there, there weren't the voices that come from time to time that I also work through in terms of my own inner critic or my own imposter syndrome, but at least I could find my way back to what my, my core values are and what I'd like to honour in my life and in the work that I do. So that's really helped me in terms of navigating back to my true north when I feel a little bit off centre. What do I mean? Why am I here? What do I stand for? And what is being me all about? That was probably the best advice I've had. Kind of reminds me a bit of, I don't know if it's a Dr. Seuss saying or something where it's like, you know, be yourself because everybody else is taken kind yes. of thing. It, um, <laughs> it's very simple, but I think as you navigate yeah. life and evolve, it is, is important to remain grounded in that sense. So I think. Well, you live with your, you're the one who's with you the whole life. <laughs> and so if you can actually be with yourself and be at ease, it's so much easier to live a life where you can feel comfortable in in how you think and how you act and the choices you make as opposed to always second guessing yourself and being tough and hard on yourself 
all the time. Uh, it makes life lighter and much more enjoyable. And I prefer to live more of a positively focused life. I'm certainly um, not a Pollyanna, but I like to you know, try and, and see the good in people and see the good in opportunities and things rather than they're not. And that makes life for me a little bit lighter. If we spoke in a year's time, what would be a goal that you might have actually worked towards or achieved? And explain to us why that's something that you're working towards, what's making it so vital for you? Well, the goal really relates to, yeah, the goal relates to the the book that, that has just recently come out, Be Your Own Leadership Coach. And the reason why it relates to that is it's a very purposeful goal for me. In writing the book, I felt very strongly that I wanted to help more people have greater access to coaching strategies. I really feel if we can do that, then we're supporting people to be their best or at least their better self. And when that happens, more people are feeling that their confidence is lifted. They're feeling much more engaged and purposeful and motivated and feel like they can achieve a huge amount more and their well-being improves. Uh, that's the key thing. And when your well-being is improved because you're experiencing more positive emotions, that ripples out to your family and friends around you. It ripples out to your teammates at work, uh, to the organisations you're in, the communities you play a part of, and step by step, it'll lead itself to a better world. And so in writing the book, that's a big dream to try and see if I can play a small part in making the world a better, more positive place, uh, particularly with the challenges that, that we're facing in the world today. I would hope in a year's time, if many more people have been able to build out their self-coaching strategies so that they've lifted their self-awareness, they're much more attuned with their values, they're much more purposeful and intentional and mindful about the impact of their behaviours, their emotions and their cognitions, I think there'll be a bit more harmony, there'll be better collaboration, um, there'll be improved wellbeing for everybody and hopefully we'll find ourselves in a better place. So Let's chat in a year's time and see. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't quite got the measure yet, but we, we, I'm sure we can reference a whole lot of, you know, Panas scales, positive scales and all sorts of things from the, the field of positive psychology that I referenced earlier. Absolutely. And just a final takeaway message for everyone listening today on the politics of self-coaching. I, I would really encourage people to make space to learn how to self-coach, build that muscle, because if you think about it, we, we often sit back and say, um, where did all the time go? And too often we don't say to ourselves, oh, I know what I'm going to use, how I'm going to use my time today and really be much more disciplined. And it's not about structured and control. You can have be quite fluid in, in the way that you self-coach, but it's more about being conscious and mindful and thinking about how you can tap into what is the impact that you'd like to have. So I'm hopeful that more people will have some curiosity, build out their self-coaching muscles. The book actually gives lots of self-coaching exercises that people can work through chapter by chapter to first be their best or better self. And then once you feel that you're achieving that, you can turn to how you can be your best self when you lead others. And, and hopefully people will find that that's of use and support. Thank you so much, Karen. If you do want to connect further with Karen and find out more about her book and what she does, there will be some detailed notes on the show notes as always. Until next time, take care. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon. 